I think we're good. Uh, thanks for the clock. And I'm going to dig in. I'm just going to head into it. Okay, uh, that is awesome, though, with Lyle. That, it, it's such a great ministry. Thank you, Lord. Uh, all right, here we go. Um, so I need to collect my thoughts. How many of you just would, you know, you, you would like to do good? By that, what I mean is, is to bless people, to, to help them. To, to really make a difference in their life. How many of you would say, yeah, that's in my heart. I would really love to truly help people. How many of you would say, yeah, I'd like to do that? I kind of hope every hand in the place goes up, and if it's not going up, please pay attention, because I just asked a question that your hand ought to go up on, okay? All right, so the point is, is that we, we look at this, and we say, how many of you have discovered that in helping people, it's not uncommon well, let me put this, it's easier to say than to do, right? I mean, actually helping people, actually making a difference in life, actually having it turn out well, that's actually kind of tough, right? I mean, some of that is because of us, right? I mean, when you're helping somebody, it's demanding time, it's demanding energy, it's demanding something from you. So there's going to be that, right? And then that's always a competition between, gee, I work, and I got family, and I got this, and how do I prioritize that, and where do I put it in my, in my schedule, and where do I get some downtime myself? And so there's this natural competition for it. You know, finance is the same kind of thing, right? You know, you're willing to give some money, but how much, and can I really afford it? And you know how it goes. And so, you know, some of the reason why we don't necessarily help people the way that we would like to is because of us. But let's be honest about something that we're going to be looking at a little bit more today. Sometimes, a lot of times, in fact, in fact, if you're somebody who's helped a lot of people in your life, one of the things that you discover about helping a lot of people is, is people just don't read the book, you know? I mean, you, you, you helped them, and they were supposed to get better. They were supposed to do this. And then they don't actually do that. You know what I mean? They do something else. And there even gets this point in time at which you can get to where you're kind of feeling like, you know, I don't know that the help that I'm giving them is actually helping them anymore. I really kind of feel like the way that I'm helping them, and if I keep helping them like this, that I'm actually doing more damage than good. I've actually, somehow that, I've shifted over some line, and I'm trying to be and do the right thing, but it's not going the way that I think it ought to go. See what I mean? I mean, this is something that's pretty common to us as we do it. It, it gets to the kind of place to where, you know, I mean... It's just complicated. If you, if you work at this church, and we're on a Northeast 8th, and there's a whole lot of people that go by here every day. That's one of the main through fairs on the whole east side. And, and so we're on this route that people that are in need that are working the system, that are gaming the system, you know what I mean? They'll, be, they'll hit churches and social agencies, and we're all kind of in this little circle. And we get a bunch of people, and they'll come in, and they'll ask us for money. And what we have to do now as a church, think about this. Think about how sort of kinked things are. We have to partner with an organization that a bunch of churches partner with to communicate about who's coming to their door to find out, is this somebody who seems to be working the system or is this somebody that genuinely needs help so that we can help discern it? Because you can't tell when somebody just walks in and they'll walk in and ask us for money and we'll say, you know, we got this way that we do it. And they'll yell at us, get mad. You're a church supposed to be helping people. And they'll get mad like that's going to make a difference, you know, and you get kind of cynical you know what I mean? You actually get kind of, you get to the place to where, I, I don't know how many people do this, I'm probably the only person, okay? But, you know, when you, when you drive up to that guy and you're at the stoplight and the guy's sitting there and he's asking for money and you don't even look at him and you try not to even think about it because it's just so complicated, 
right? I mean, you just, all you were doing was driving, thinking about something else. All of a sudden, this guy's asking for money, and you know it's a human being, and you know that you're supposed to be nice, and you know that you're supposed to help him, and you, you have this thought about something like that, but at the same time, you know, if I give him money, is that going to work out very well? Won't they use it to do drugs or take drink or do something else that's not going to be helpful? And, and, you know, I just don't, and, you know what I mean? So here's what we do. Now, this is Christians now. This is everybody, but it's Christians too. We, do, we sort of start dumbing ourselves down to the needs that are around us, don't we? Isn't there just this sort of thing that's happening in our culture and the way that it works and everything else that gets us to this weird place to where we just, we just kind of, you know, we, we set up our principles, and if you can get through the hoops of our principles, then we'll help you in, in a certain fashion. And You see what I mean? We're kind of... So I just want to say that's a little problematic, because, you know, Jesus, when he's talking to us at one point in time, he says something like this. Say so there's these righteous people, and they do all this stuff, and the people come to him and say, when do we do that? The righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? A stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When, when did we ever see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when he did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king turns to those on the left and says, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. Put that one in your head. I was naked and you didn't get me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they'll reply, Lord, when did we ever see you? Hungry or thirsty and stranger, naked, sick and in prison? When did we not help you? And the answer is, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you're refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. That's kind of a high bar. <laughs> you know what I mean? How many people didn't make it through our filter, our gates that we put up, that are going to fit into that category? I mean... That, that presents me personally with a problem. And I think that presents us all with a problem. How do we get this thing right? How do, we, how do we find the balance? How do we find the proper place where we can really be who we want to be? We all raised our hands and said we wanted to be a certain kind of person. How can we actually get there? And the cool thing is, in this little bitty book, Ruth, you know, those four little chapters, it just slides right on by, a nice little story, and then move on. It turns out that in this book of Ruth, there's an incredible insight into how to do all this spectacularly. It's going to ask both less and more of you. Amazing thing that we're just going to go after here. So who's our prayer? Okay, oh, this is awesome, Michelle Hooskamp. That is awesome. Okay, so Michelle does, besides youth steering team and all kinds of other stuff, she's also a Fuller student, so she's getting her, getting her props up in the whole line yards. I'm sure she'll be preaching up here fairly soon. So, very cool thing. So, Michelle, go ahead. Pray for the sermon. Lift up another church, too. God, I just thank you that we can be here today, um, especially after just good family time last night at the full family gathering, that we can come again together and just learn from you. And as you speak through Kurt, um, God, that he would just step out of the way and let you speak. Amen. And God, I lift up the Seattle Vineyard Church today. Amen. That during their time of worship and time together, that you would be present and that you would be speaking. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Awesome.
Okay, in order to get us to where we got to be, to understand why this book is so weird and the way it's placed and what God's doing with it, I do want to just give you a little history. Understand the whole of the Bible is a history, right? That's what it is. It's a historical telling. Now, there's purpose and meaning and truth in it and so on. But the bottom line is, it is, in essence, it's a history. Just a, a, a look at, a video, if you will, of the progress of mankind. And, and the interesting thing is, we start off Adam and Eve. God calls it very good. And indeed, it is very good, right? Right up until it ain't so good, right? By some choice of ours. And then all of a sudden, it ain't so good. And it gets so bad, in fact, after they get cast out of the garden, it gets so bad that the, the thought of every person was filled with so much violence, evil, not God, that God ends up having to destroy the whole of his creation except for Noah. Not the whole of his creation, but the whole of the created beings except for Noah, right? And his family. Now, you go on from there, and you get to Abraham. Here's Abraham. I mean, come on. Abraham is awesome, right? Father of faith, the guy who believed God and counted unto his righteousness. That's what we believe, and that's how come we're saved. And Abraham is awesome. Right up until the moment that, you know, he gets a little afraid about some other guy, and he's got this wife, and he says, you know, tell him that you're my sister because, you know, you're so pretty, they're going to kill me and take you. You know, right? That's not so cool. And, and then he does it twice. <laughs> okay, okay, uh, you know, good and not so good, mixed together. And, and you can just keep going, right? You can, get to, you can get to Jacob, his son. There's a very problematic sort of a person, right? Not that it's all bad. I mean, he, he loved the things of God, but... You know, he was stealing stuff, and, you know, it's not so cool. And his children, you know, the 12, the, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes, there's a, there's a really interesting group of guys, right? There's some good stuff that they did, along with, you know, selling their brother to slavery, you know, which, is, which by the way, was better than killing him, which is what they were going to do in the first place. Okay, I mean, you see what history is like? We, we can just keep going all the way, right? We get to Moses. Moses, come on, Charlton Heston, part in the Red Sea, Moses. Right? This is good, right? All good. You know, yeah, except, of course, that he's a murderer. Uh, you know, just that little thing. You know, and then you go to, you know, uh, we get into the land, and we got all these judges. Do yourself a favor. Go ahead and look at Gideon and Samson and these people, the people that God used to deliver his people. Look at what outstanding individuals they were. You know, Samson, really? Come on. I mean, this is a problematic guy. You know, there's good... But then there's all this other stuff. And, and we get to the first king, Saul. You know, this is a guy, we're going through the history books. This is a guy who, you know, this is tall and handsome and humble. This guy's awesome. Except he doesn't follow God. So God comes along and says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise up for you the guy. The Lord sought after a man after his own heart. And this is David. David is amazing. I mean, David really is amazing. I mean, you want to be David. All except for, you know, that adultery and the killing the husband part. You know, that's not so cool. See how it goes? And it just keeps going on and on like that. And I do want to say, it, that's not just, you know, we get to Solomon. That's a guy that started really good, right? God says, you can have anything you want. Here's what I want. Wisdom to help lead your people well. That's awesome. He ends up far from God. 600 wives will do that to you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> at least I got some of the wives laughing too so okay <laughs> I'm all right <laughs> he's not gonna use the spear to get me you know okay you know you get to watch the kings of Israel this is the history books right the kings of Israel you got the northern tribes that split after Solomon and the two southern tribes 10 northern two southern northern tribes 20 kings 200 years not one good king not one 
All of them evil. The southern tribes, this is Judah. Come on, this is the big stuff. Judah, 340 years. 20 kings again. Six of them are good. One of them sort of on this fence. All the rest of them just bad. I mean, this is the sort of track record of mankind. And it's true today, too. You go right now into our culture. It's been true throughout history. You go right now into the Bellevue culture, and you will see outstanding things that are awesome. Some of the things this church does, amazing. The way that our benevolence ministry is run by the steering team and Chris and so on, it's incredible what we do. The stories, I don't know if you read the weekly update this week, great testimony in there. But this church just helped a church in Spokane, Washington. It's in the poorest zip code in the entire state. You'll hear more about this at some other time. But that committee got together and prayed and felt like they should send a significant gift to them, and they did. And it just changed these people's lives. I've met the people at this church before, and I'm telling you, this is truly a church that's coming right off of the street. And we just bless their socks off. I mean, you don't do that, right? Churches don't do that. They want to do that. They want to be that, but they don't actually do it. And we did it. And it's not just us. There's other churches in the area that are doing incredible things. There's even other people that don't know Christ that are doing very good things in this community. But then you can put on the, that other lens, that other pair of glasses, and you can start seeing just the way that this culture is just getting so coarse. I mean, I could go after the obvious stuff like sex where I, I just, this is so important. You know, God gave us this thing that feels better than really almost anything else in terms of physicality. And the reason why he gave it to us was is he wanted that to be a, a movement towards becoming truly one. Here's the key to that. You cannot truly become one with somebody unless you become completely vulnerable, transparent, and open to the other person. So God says, do that inside of marriage where there's a commitment so that you can truly open yourself up to one another. You can experience this wonderful thing, but really it's leading to something that's even more wonderful, which is really trusting somebody, really being there and, and doing this kind of thing. And, and our culture has taken that big, juicy peach that is so good for you and brings such life, and we've substituted for it instead this, this, this perversion of just a, a spoon of sure. And what it is is, well, you've got physical needs, and you just have to meet the physical needs, and it's no problem. And you know what it's doing to souls is what it's doing is making them harder for them to ever become one with somebody because they're learning how to, to, to do the gratification part, but they're not learning how to be open and transparent. They're learning, in fact, how to build walls. In fact, how to keep themselves distant. You've got to protect yourself. That's exactly why God created marriage and put it inside of marriage so that people could be open and genuinely transparent and not have to protect themselves. So I could go on on that. I, I, this isn't really what the sermon's about, so I, I just want to, but I want us to get this idea. I do want to go one more place because I could go so many different places where, yes, there's good, but there's also this really not good that's going on. And, and this is one, that, this is Goldman Sachs, uh, this is a big Wall Street firm. It's, it's really, several of them went broke over the financial crisis and so on. Goldman survived it. You may wonder why that Chinese flag right there may have something to do with it. But, uh, but the bottom line is, Goldman Sachs, I want you to think about this. See, right now, Wall Street investment bankers have a very bad reputation, right? Their reputation has been totally sullied. But here's the truth of investment banking. It's the reason why you are all wearing nice shirts and driving nice cars and living in homes. 
It was way back when, when there was capital and there were these investment bankers who would find capital and they would find investment opportunities and they would marry the two and this business would grow and it would make the people that ran the business wealthy and it would make the capital wealthy and it would make the brokers that helped put the people together wealthy. Everybody benefited. We were all on the same page. We were all doing the same thing and it was helping one another to increase and that's godly. And, in, and just recently, one of the associates at Greg, at, called Greg Smith at Goldman Sachs did an op-ed piece in the, I think it was the Times. Yeah, it was the Times. Uh, and then he wrote this book about it to develop it further. And in the book, he tells these stories that go like this. What you have to understand is inside Goldman, you know, these reputable, honorable, integrity firms. Here's what's actually happening behind the doors. And boy, I'll tell you, for Greg Smith to talk about this stuff, you have to understand, when, once you get in Goldman Sachs, you're never going to be poor again in your life. I mean, it's just a, a print money thing. You're going to be wealthy. So even if you don't like what's going on, shut the heck up and take the money and run. I mean, that's the mentality, right? That's how we are as human beings. At least not all of us, but you get the point. And the bottom line is, is Greg, Greg does this. He'll probably ruin him. I mean, who's going to hire him now for writing this book? Because here's what he says. He says, here's what the, here's what the culture is behind the phone call. Literally, he said, a guy, a partner, will sell this really complicated financial investment that has all of these various pieces in it. And there's so many pieces and it's so complicated that it's really impossible for an investor to come in and really properly appraise the risk that's in it. And so pension funds, which have all this money, you know, that you're putting away for retirement, pension funds that have all this money need to put it somewhere, they'll go to a trusted, reputable place like Goldman Sachs, and they will buy these financial investments to be secure with your money so that you can retire and not be poor when you get old. And the banker will hang up the phone having made a sale to a pension fund and start bragging to all the office about how he just screwed the pension fund with his terribly risky investment. So risky, in fact, that the, the banker will then, he'll tout how he, he pulled the wool over their eyes and pulled this off, and then he'll go out and make an investment on the bet that that investment's going to fail. He'll work the other side of the market. The same broker that just sold the pension fund, your retirement money, will go out and make another investment against that. Now, this is just evil. This is just abominable. Now, I'm not saying every Wall Street banker does this by any way, shape, or form. I do want you to understand that. And it's, greed has always been a problem in mankind, right? So this isn't brand new. But it does seem to be hitting heights, right? I mean, something's just whack. Well, history, <laughs> look at it. We started with Adam, and we tracked it all the way through to, you know, a couple of years ago, and we got the same story all the way through it. Except in one place. I mean, literally, I want you to see this. This is a list of the books, and there's a few extra ones down here that you see that, and those are books that the Hebrews will use. They're not necessarily part of their official text, but they're primary text nonetheless for Jewish religion. And, I, and what they did in this thing, I really like it, because they made eat, the size of each book is the relative size of the book. Do you see it? So you got the first five books, which are called Pentateuch, and that's the founding of the nation of Israel, and it's a history of the nation of Israel. And then we go down into these Joshua and Judges and all this stuff. And this is history again. See it? Now, I want you to see something here. See Ruth right there? Little bitty Ruth? Can't even fit inside the box. 
four-chapter momentary little blip, Ruth. In fact, that, that's not even representative of how small it is. It would almost just be a line relative to these other books. That's how small that book is. But here's what's really cool about the book of Ruth. It's an oasis in a long line of yuck history. <laughs> good and not so good. Ruth is this story of two people that are spectacular. The kind of people that we want to be. Ruth is this, there's this vast wasteland <laughs> That is the course of human history, and it's desolate. We've devastated it. We've taken all the life out of it. We, we do it to our own harm, right? But then all of a sudden, there comes in the middle of that this, this little oasis moment. This, this, this moment where there's actually, you know, there's the ability to have life again in the middle of it because there's water. Rivers of living water in the middle of a desert is an oasis. Now, it's, it's looping, and you can go ahead and just stop it at the end. I, I kind of wanted to just stop it. But, but I just want to say, that's why I put this cheesy thing up here. Okay? I wanted to do something that might stick with you about, here's what God is asking us to be in a world that is desolated by our own actions. He made it a garden, and then we made it a desert. And here's what God is asking you and me to be. An oasis isn't he? A river of living water in the middle of something that will, that will help people, bless them, really make a difference in their life. I'm telling you, you walking through a desert and you get a drink of water, you're a happy man. <laughs> You've just blessed somebody. You made a difference in their life, right? How did he do this? We've already seen Ruth do this amazing thing that one commentator, I, I totally agree with him, the most sacrificial act in the Holy Old Testament was Ruth saying that she was going to go with Naomi instead of all the other ways that she could have protected herself. The things that she chose to go with, were, that was an outstanding gesture. But now we're going to meet her equal. He doesn't have to step up like she had to step up. But nonetheless, I want to show you a really good man. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. He was a relative of Naomi's husband. That will become important later in the story. But Elimelech, one day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields and pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, yeah, that's how it works here. See, God's welfare system is this. What you do is, is that as the, as the, the field owner is gleaning or his harvesters are gleaning, don't get all the stuff. Purposefully leave some behind. And God's welfare system is that then people who are too poor and they can't eat, they're going to starve to death, they can come along behind the harvesters, they can pick up grain, and they'll have enough to eat and survive. And this is God doing this. And we're going to get into this a little bit more in a moment, but I want you to see that. So let me go in the harvest fields and do this. All right, my daughter, says Naomi. So Ruth went out, by the way, calling her my daughter now. I love that, daughter-in-law, but you know, right? Something else has happened here. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. As it happened? Really? <laughs> Just coincidence? Here's what the scripture is filled with. People like Naomi, they get to places where they're saying, my name, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me, um, I forget what the name is, but bitter. Call me bitter. Mara, call me bitter. 
because of this disappointment, losing my husband, losing my sons, losing everything, having to, having to be left to a life of a pauper for the rest of my life. This is the thing. And yet, what's God doing behind the scenes? Just happened. You're right. <laughs> okay? So, uh, the relative of, you know, right. Okay. So, while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. And I just want to say something. I may be reading too much into this, but go with me on this for a second, because I think you'll see I, I, I got a reason for it. The Lord be with you. Can I just say something in our culture? Wouldn't it be nice if people greeted themselves that way? Greeted each other that way? Wouldn't it be better than what we typically do, which is like this? Hey. Right? I mean, just the, I mean, even if you're doing it in rote, you know people can do religious things in a rote way, right? And it doesn't really mean anything to them. But is that true for everybody? I mean, wouldn't it be, it, even if it was only 10% of all the people that were saying, Lord be with you, and it really didn't mean anything to them, if 10% of, of the people that said that actually meant it, wouldn't that be better? <laughs> and I want to argue that Boaz, and you'll see it in a second here, Boaz is a guy that when he comes up and says, the Lord be with you, here's what he's saying. The Lord be with you. He means it. Right? The Lord bless you. Right? Then Boaz asked the foreman, who's that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? The foreman replied, the young woman from Moab came back with Naomi, asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work. Tells you something about her, right? Hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Normal, right? Hot sun, all that. No, no, no big deal there. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. This is Boaz being an oasis. A change in the path of a person's life. What the heck is it? Oh. Stay right behind the young woman working in the field. See which part of the field they're harvesting and then follow them right behind them. See? Don't worry about it. The guys aren't going to beat you up for doing this. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water that they've drawn from the well. I got to tell you right there, I'm in love with Boaz. I mean, this, here's what I think we can do in modern culture. This is how debased we can get. We can say, well, you know, I mean, there's a way of reading this that says that Boaz is like this, just this old man, you know, he's old and, and like here's this pretty young thing in the field and he's got some advantage and so, you know, he can be nice to her and who knows, it may work out good for him. I mean, I think you can read this story this way and I, when you do that, I think you so violate. I mean, violate is the right word. You do violence to the spirit of this man, at this point in time, there's nothing about him that is going after anything like that. In fact, quite to the opposite, look what he says. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him. I mean, this is a life changer, right? Wow, you know, I'm not going to get raped. I'm not going to get beat. I'm not going to get shooed off. I'm not going to get, instead I'm finding favor and I can drink water and this is huge. What have I done to deserve such kindness? I'm only a foreigner. Remember that. This isn't a Jewish person. This is a hated person, or at least from a tribe of hated people. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I know something else. Everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the, I love that he puts this detail in there, since the death of your husband. Yeah. I want to cry right there. I mean, you see what he's doing? I don't know you, but I know about you. And I want to know that I identify, I get that you've lost your husband and that you're in a tough place and that you made this tough choice. 
I've heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land, the places where you might have been provided for, and come to live here amongst complete strangers, even people that don't like you. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. When I say that he's saying, God bless you and God be with you, that he means it, I get that in part from that statement right there. You see where his brain goes? May the Lord bless you for what you've done. And he means, may the Lord bless you for what you've done. And then here's what he's doing. I'll be that blessing. I'll be the instrument of God blessing you the way that he wants to. See? I mean, that's just beautiful. So it goes on. At mealtimes, he doesn't just stop there. Now watch what he does. At mealtime, he says, come over here, help yourself to some food, dip your bread in the sour wine, which is, a, you know, like a vinegar type thing. So that would be like oil and vinegar at Coho's, right? So she sat down with the harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. Now, notice something. The, the image here is not that Boaz is sitting at a table away from his workers. The image is, is that Boaz is dining with his workers. That's the kind of man that he is. You can't prove it from that verse, but that's the sense of it. And he's not only doing that, but he's actually serving somebody. And he's not only just serving anybody. He's serving this person that's gleaning, uh, from which he's going to get no benefit. If he's nice to his own workers, that's going to help him because they'll work harder for him. If he's nice to somebody who's just taking from him, <laughs> that isn't to his benefit. That's to his harm. And yet he's doing it. This is the kind of man that he is. This is, you know, rich people get a bad rap because of this generalization, this stereotype, and so on. The fact is, I've known a lot of rich people in my life, and here's what I know about most of the rich people that I know. And I would say this is 90% plus. They're really loving, generous people who realize the blessing that they've gotten and are wisely. They're trying to do it wisely, but they are absolutely trying to help people. And they will give generously of their resources to try and do that. And this is the kind of person that Boaz is. He's not doing this begrudgingly. You know, somebody looks at, say, um, giving to the church. You know what I mean? And, you know, oh, I can't believe I have to do this. You know? And, and what God is saying is, is look, I, I want you to have a certain spirit, attitude. I want you to have a certain way of being. And that way of being is to be a blessing. This is what I want. This is, this is what makes your life actually better, even though economically it may seem like it doesn't do that it really does do that on so many levels so she ate all that she wanted and she still had some food left over ruth went back to work again boaz ordered young men let her gather grain right amongst the sheaves i'll stop her in fact you know what pull out some of the heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time Actually, this is NLT, so it's trying to make this more clear, but I, I want to give you, the word right there is don't embarrass her. Don't make her be embarrassed about this generosity that given her. Do you see the mentality right here? He's trying to help her. He could have just said, here, here's a bunch of food. We're going to talk about this in a second, but that would be a help on her. That would help her, right? But actually, he's doing something that's better than that. We're going to see this in a second. What he's actually doing is he's saying, let her do what she's doing, but give her favor, give her more, and, and make sure that she does this, but do it in a way that it doesn't hurt her dignity as a human being. So Ruth gathered barley there all that day, and then she beat out the grain that evening, and it filled an entire basket. Now, there's two things in here which are the two things that we're really hitting big today. 
One of them is not nearly as important as the, the second one, but let me go with the less important one, but this is still really important. I want you to think about this for just a second, and I want you to, I'm going to do an illustration here, and I'm going to go to the political realm, and I want to say something. It's still a little tender, you know what I mean? The, the election cycle just got over, and some people are really disappointed, some people are really excited, and everything else. The one thing that I want us to think about is, is this tremendous polarization, this tremendous, you know, it's to the point, and this, by the way, polarization is not anything new. Polarization has been mankind's lot throughout history, and we're going to see why. There's two different ways of looking at life, essentially. They're not really different ways, but there's just two different, there's a spectrum of ways of looking at life, and people tend to fall on one side or the other. And the bottom line is, is that I just want to talk, and, and I, I want to make it very clear. If, if I say something, just hang in there with me, because I'm about to say something. If, if I say something you don't like, I'm about to say something you do. And if I say something you do like, hang in there, because I'm about to say something that you don't. Okay. So would you just give me a grace here, because I'm going to try and do something that would take a long time to do for real, but I don't want to take that much time on it. But I do want us to see something, because it'll help us to see something about helping people. And that's conservative and liberal. Liberals will tend to look at conservatives and say, you don't really want to help people. You say you do, you give it lip service, but really it's about principles and all that kind of stuff. And really, in your life, you don't actually help people. And knowing a lot of conservatives, I know that that's not true because a lot of conservatives are very helpful to people on a very personal, individualized basis. They have a lot of issues with, you know, they'll look at, for example, liberals and they'll say, you know, I think that you have compassion but without wisdom. I think I have compassion with wisdom. That's the, how they'll describe that. And they'll look at it and they'll say, you know, I, I'm all for, when you get a Naomi and a Ruth, when you get somebody who really is just down on their luck and they need a hand up, man, we need to help those people. There really is a social net. The argument is not whether or not there's a social that the argument is is how big is it because what they can say is is you know I, I you know I go to Lake Sam and you know I see these people that are gaming the system and anybody who's got their eyes open and it helps a lot of people knows that that's true there's people that, that do things in a way that they're getting by and and not really well I'm not saying it's a wonderful life and they're getting rich and driving nice cars what I am saying is is that they're doing things in a particular fashion to where it actually, and the conservative will say this, they'll say it's actually starting to rob a dignity from them. The way that they're being helped is not to go along behind and do something. It's just to get something and to get a victim and to get a you're supposed to help me mentality. And when you get there, that's a problem. That's not human nature. That, I mean, it is human nature, I'm sorry. That's not the nature that God wants in us. He's trying to do something quite different than that. Now, the liberal, again, will look at the conservative saint making the argument I just made right there, and I do want to confess something. I am a conservative, okay? That's the way I think of myself. That's the way I process life. That's the way I think, okay? But I do want to say something. I'm a bad conservative, okay? Because I'm telling you, I'm filled with this other thing, which I think a lot of conservatives are. I think most of the conservatives in this building truly are. I'm filled with this other thing, which is I really want to help people. I just don't want to do things in a stupid way that is actually less helpful than what we think. I don't want to feel good about throwing a bunch of money at a problem. I want to feel good because I made a difference in their actual life. Okay? But now, I just want you to follow something, see? What happens is, when the liberal looks at the conservative, they say, you don't have any heart when the conservative looks at the liberal, they say you don't have any brains. 
I mean, I'm being serious here, right? When you get to the extremes of that spectrum, that's the kind of argument that they make. It turns out that's actually kind of true. Not in the way that they're saying it. But follow me here for a second. There's been a lot of research done on what makes a person a conservative or a liberal or why they have conservative or liberal tendencies. Okay? And, and here it goes. See this, see this emotional thing down here? That's the limbic system down here. And the stuff out towards the top, you know, that gray matter that you always think of as the brain, that controls things like arms and legs and stuff like that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about more core functions of what we think of as the brain more naturally. There's the limbic system, and then there's the frontal lobe. We've talked about it a lot in here, so I don't have to go into too much detail. But look, the limbic system is the place of emotions. The frontal lobe is the place of higher reasoning. When you take a liberal and you put them in a brain scan and you're looking at the scan and you're, you're, light, you're seeing what part of the brain lights up and you give them a problem having to do with helping a needy person, here's what a person that's inclined towards liberalism does. Their limbic system lights up. So does the frontal lobe a little bit. But the emphasis is far greater to the limbic, the emotional, than it is. Now that's, here's the thing, see, the conservatives saying you don't have any brains, that's not true. The emotion's part of the brain. In fact, I really want to make this clear. God placed the emotions out of part of the brain. I'm, I'm being totally serious about this now. If you had to make an argument about which one's more important, higher reasoning or emotional, God made the brain in such a way that you'd have to say that it was the emotional that was more important. Now, it's not true, because the truth is, is God gave us both, and he wants us to use both, for real. Not to orient to one or the other, but to light them both up equally. That's what he meant, have happen. But when you put somebody in there that tends towards liberalism, their emotional thing will light up and their, their frontal lobe will light up, but not nearly as much. Likewise, when you put a conservative in there, their frontal lobe lights up and their emotional, that's what really lights up, the emotional kind of lights up. See it? Well, here's what that means. That means when we're talking and we say, I don't understand how you can say that. I don't understand how you can think that. Here's, here's why that's, that talk is happening. They're literally processing that with an entirely different part of the brain. They're, it literally is. You're thinking, no, I understand all of it. That's what we all tend to think about ourselves. The truth is we're biased. In fact, you want to know how bad it is? This is what cable has done to us. Cable, if you take somebody who tends towards firing on both ways to some extent and you have them just watch one cable network, it'll push them one or the other. If you watch Fox, it'll push you towards higher frontal lobe, higher critical. It just will. It's not that there's not plenty of talk about compassion and empathy and so on. It's just that it goes to other places. If you have people watch MSNBC, which, you know, or most of the mainstream the media because they do identify as liberals then people will run the other direction. So actually what we're doing in terms of our consuming habits as we become very fragmentized, we're actually pushing people to the extremes now. There isn't one common language. It's like Babel again. There isn't a one common language that's just yes and. Yes and. Bringing us together. I always understand the thing that God is always trying to do with people is to bring them together. The fact of the matter is, is that God is the one. I, I want to show you something in the Bible just to show you how much God thinks in an emotional way. How much value he puts on it. That's the way I should say that. This is all the books and the size. Tell me what's the biggest book of the Bible.
Is that an emotional or a, or a frontal lobe? There's plenty of frontal lobe in it. Don't misunderstand me. But Psalms is emotional, primarily. It's song. It works at a different level. It's the cry of the heart. It's the cry of the thing. You see what it is? So what we're getting is, we're getting that God is doing this incredible thing where God himself has made the biggest book in the Bible about what? The emotions. The way that we're experiencing life. Why would God make the emotions so important? It seems to somebody who likes to live in the frontal lobe, it seems like that emotional thing is kind of, you know, right? Why would God make such a big deal about that? Well, it is helpful, you know, when a bear comes for you to be afraid. Sets off a lot of emotions and you can run really fast. Probably not faster than the bear, but you don't actually have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than the other person that's with you. Right? Okay? So, you know, if you fear more and you got more adrenaline, then you win, they lose. Okay? And, you know, you can help them later, I guess. Here's why, here's why God made the emotional stuff. Here's why he made it so important. What's the most important thing? Is it to know all the doctrine and dogma of Christianity? Frontal lobe stuff? Or is it to love God? He made us beings that, are, that have an extremely high capacity to love. It's the most important thing in life. You don't have to be overly smart. You can be. I, I really want to say something. Our frontal lobes are to be working in conjunction with our emotions. They're to be working out how to get our heart to do this. I want to say something. As a conservative Christian living in this country, I'm in conflict all the time because there's so many things that conservatives think and believe that I don't think are, I think they, they sound good, but I don't think they actually are being worked out that way. And so it's tough for me because I'm going, we need to make a difference. I, I, I'm sorry, just a, just a real quick thing. I remember when George Bush won and he won the House and the Senate and I went to Julie right then and I said, they'll have two years because the next congressional election is two years away. I said, they'll have two years. Bush ran on the first time compassionate conservatism. Remember that? And I said, they'll have two years to demonstrate what that actually means in the world. And if they will spend two years doing nothing but, but, but showing what compassionate conservatism really is, full limbic, full frontal lobe, if they will spend two years working that people will be with them forever. If on the other hand, they spend two years working on big business interests and deregulating people and doing all this kind of things, and I think deregulation mostly can be a good thing. It leads us into problems that we got into and so on. But that's, that's frontal lobe. But if they spend a lot of time doing rich people stuff, then the country will throw them out. And we still haven't recovered from those two years where we chose the one over the other. Are you, are you catching the drift here? Okay, so what did God do? Now, this is what he reveals in Ruth. Think about this. We would say, it's not dignified for you to have to go pick up my scraps. That's how we process it as modern brains in our culture right now. 
Better that you should just give me money and let me have my dignity. Don't make me pick up your scraps. That would demean me. Better that what you do is just give me money. <laughs> have you spent much time with people that are just that are doing that? Dignity is the thing that is being robbed from them in spades, vastly. It's tragic what's taking place. It's robbing people of something. You know, I get picking up somebody else's scraps can be a hard thing to do, but it is interesting, and I'm not arguing that we should do that. I'm not arguing rich people should start dropping things behind them and people pick it up. <laughs> but I do want to say something. What God set up as his social welfare system was for someone to do work for what they got. They still had to glean. They didn't just sit home waiting for the check in the mail or waiting for somebody to deliver the food to them. They had to go out and they had to actually do something that was actually kind of consistent with, you know, the job that you might want to get. And, it, and it's not so pleasant that you would think, you know, this is better than getting a job. This is not that much fun. But you know what? You know, I, it, it, the, I, it's enough for me to survive, and it motivates me to go after something more. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to dive out of this right now, because, but I just want to hit it with this one point. I want you to think about how God married right there in that social welfare system of his. He married limbic and frontal lobe. He marries reason and care. He marries a hope for somebody with something that stands a better chance of helping them. You see that? Which is to say this, and this gets us to our second and last point. Here's what's actually happening. You can't help people en masse. How did Boaz do it again? Did he, did he go to the city elders and they set up a big program to help everybody the same way as if people were a bunch of just, what, cookie-cutter people? No, what he does is he says, come over here and help yourself to some food. Dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with the harvesters and let me help you. Let me feed. Let me sit with you. Let me be with you. Here's what he did. He said, come and be with me. I just want to challenge our thinking about something here. When we want to help somebody, see, like when we're, you know, and I'm talking about somebody you don't know, right? Your first thought is money, because that's usually what they're asking for, right? Your first thought is money, and you know, it's easy to give money. Not always, but if you have some money, it's easy to give money, right? And that's not the worst thing for them, that's the worst thing for you. Because that didn't, does it make you feel good? Are you doing this so that you can feel good? Because what you actually did was you gave him money and said, go away. Is that what God did with you and me? What did he do instead? He invited us to his table. We can do it with time too, right? You know what I mean? I'm putting a lot of time into you now. I'll tell you the hardest way to keep helping a person for the long haul. You, you, when you help somebody, you naturally start loving them in some capacity. But here's the hardest way to actually help somebody over the long haul. Define clearly the boundaries of the help. 
and keep them outside of those boundaries. When you're trying to help somebody by doing nice things for them and giving them money and giving them advice and doing this kind of stuff, but you're not actually letting them into your heart, you're not actually letting them into your life, anybody who's being helped knows I'm your project. People have this funny way of not liking to be someone else's project. You're willing to tell me what to do. That's what it ends up sounding like. We think it's helping. You're willing to tell me what to do, but you're not actually willing to be my friend. You're not actually going to enter into a love relationship with me. Let me say it this way. I don't know how you can ever help somebody if you don't love them. And I mean get to know them individually and personally and all the quirks and baggage and history and family issues and everything. I don't know how you can ever love anybody. I don't know how you can ever help anybody unless you actually know who they are as a human being because one size does not fit all. And the little formula or principles that you might have on how you help people are, are going to fit one person by luck and not the next person. And much better if you will bring them to your table. You do understand Boaz did not just bring her to his table. You understand that pretty soon he's actually going to end up bringing her into his family. And do understand there was another nearer relative, right? And the nearer relative says, yeah, sure, you know, if I get this and I get, oh, wait a minute, if I take Ruth in, because, you know, the husband has died, and so I have to marry her. And, and she'll actually decrease the inheritance which I'm going to ha have for my kids, and that will hurt my family. See, I'm willing to marry her, but I'm not willing to have her be part of my family. You see it? I'm willing to help, but I'm not actually willing to become one with. So that guy passes. And Boaz, again, for non-lecherous reasons, for altruistic, unbelievable reasons, Boaz brings her in. And I just want to show you this. This is a, this is a picture of uh, Shannon, who was O'Donnell, I think, in this picture. And I think she's watching right now. So turn around and say, hi, Shannon. Okay, tell her that you love her, okay? Because I do, and you should too. And if you knew her, you would. And that's actually my niece right there. And the, the reason why I wanted to show this particular picture was Shannon is a girl who, uh, you know, I mean, we all have interesting bringing up, right? Some people have more interesting than others. And, and Shannon just had some interesting things happen in her life that got her into a tough place. And, and she was living alone in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And, and my parents, being the kind of people that they are, they just started inviting her into their home to dine with her, to sup with her, to, to, to share their lives with her. And the reason why I wanted you to see this particular picture is because that's my niece, and you can see how much a part of our family she is. Shannon is not somebody that my parents helped. Shannon's my sister. For real. <laughs> and this is her with my parents. And my parents helped her so much. They made such a big difference in her life that she ended up marrying this incredible guy for later in life. But this incredible guy, I mean, they were an oasis. <laughs> Not just a place of rest, but a place of life. This is Larry Nielsen. Many of you know him because he's preached here before. Look at this picture right here. This ought to tell you everything you need to know. Who's missing in that picture of my brothers and my dad? Me. 
I was doing a wedding that, it was uh, Joy and uh, Josh's wedding. I was doing a wedding that weekend, so I couldn't go back for the annual time where we put up logs for my dad so they have firewood for the winter and all that kind of stuff. And it's just a, you know, but, but look who is in that picture. <laughs> my brother. My real brother. See what I mean? Not by blood, but because he's part of my family now. And I just want to make it clear, that's just two people. And I do want to make it clear, I could talk to you about the ones I did, but that just felt kind of not so good. And I don't think I've ever done them as well as my parents have, ever. Not in my life, not once. And I've done a lot. I mean, we've had people literally living on our couches for months and months and months who totally became part of our family. And, you know, that's just how it goes, right? I mean, if you're going to do this right, I, I can't help but look at the leaves. How many people are living in your house right now? Ten. <laughs> you, you know that number really well, don't you? <laughs> I want to introduce you to Ruth and Boaz. Good people. I'm not saying they're perfect. I have no idea what, which way they're not perfect, but I, I'm sure there's some way I don't know about. But they're an oasis. And they've made a difference, a big difference the kind of difference that we all want to make. And you can't do that unless you bring them in. In all ways. We were going to do a discussion group, but we went long on a couple of things, including this, and so... I'm not going to do that right now. So instead, just for those of you who are planning on doing that, I'm, we're out of time, and I'm just going to... Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I come before you right now. And, and I ask you on behalf of every person sitting here that we would become Ruth's and Boaz's, that we would become the people of God with your heart, the one that you gave when you reserved nothing from us, when you gave us all, when you brought us into your heart. 